1: Good afternoon. I am Genevieve Wood, senior advisor here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, our president, Kay James, was originally hosting this event, but she got called over to the White House as she asked me uh, to fill in. That's the bad news. The good news is I don't have a lot of opening remarks, so you're going to get to cow much, much faster. Uh, but I do want to say a couple of things about this nice gentleman. You know, when I don't have remarks made and you're kind of caught on the spot, like, what do you say? I usually say a quick prayer, God, what should I say? And the thing that popped into my mind was, popped right into my mind was Cal Thomas is a great American. Now you always want to make sure you don't just think you've heard God directly and you want to check those things but if you look at Cal's history and his life and certainly his career uh, starting in radio into television uh, being one of America's most widely nationally syndicated columnists and of course all of his commentating uh, that you've seen him on Fox News among other places you know that he's been standing up for America and trying to point Americans towards the right place on public policy and culture for many, many years. Uh, What some of you may not know is that oftentimes when Cal Thomas is in a green room, he's actually talking with the folks beforehand that he's going to be on debating. And he's trying to talk to them about what they have in common, trying to find common ground, inviting them to coffee after. They go on TV and do the back and forth. But Cal is somebody who loves not just his country, but his fellow citizens. And I think that's why he wrote the book that he did today, America's Expiration Date. Because even though that's the name of the book, I think he must believe that if we get on the right track, there's hope that we don't have to go to this place. And that's what he's going to talk to us about today. Cal's going to take your questions after his remarks. Uh, For those of you who haven't gotten a copy of the book, it is available right outside these doors. And he's agreed to stay afterwards and sign copies for folks as well. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Cal Thomas.
0: Thank you, Genevieve. Yes, the, uh, the book is free, but the signature costs 20 bucks. I don't know. Or as I like to say, I'm the only author who has a money-back guarantee on all of his books. If you don't like it, I guarantee you not to give your money back. It's always a privilege to be at uh, Heritage. I think uh, Kay James made the right choice, going to the White House instead of listening to me, but uh, you can be the judge of that. Thank you for showing up. I assume most of you are staff and are required to be here because I wouldn't come to hear a speech by a guy like me. But uh, it's like Groucho Marx used to say, I wouldn't want to be be a member of uh, any club that would have me as a member, so... We who are unabashedly conservative love to quote Ronald Reagan because, among other things, he had a way of describing Washington's dysfunction that people could understand. It was Reagan who said, the only proof of eternal life in Washington is a government program. It was also Reagan who said America is only one generation away from losing it all. What did he mean by that? He meant that the freedoms we enjoy are not shared by much of the world, and are not the norm. Dictatorships, religious oppression, denial of women's rights, and the lack of a free press appear to be the norm. America's values must be renewed, like a library book, if some of you remember libraries and checking books out. They have to be renewed in each generation, and sometimes within a single generation, or we risk losing them. That's, I think, what Reagan meant. History is a great teacher, or should be, though the closest we get to history these days seems to be instant replays and sports contests. The reason history can teach and warn us when we are on the tr- wrong track is because human nature never changes. We can change clothing and hairstyles, modes of transportation and other things, but we can't change human nature. The seven deadly sins endure. They include the envy of what others have, as we're seeing in this current presidential campaign, greed and attempting to get what others have earned, and a sense of entitlement. These and other characteristics are among the reasons empires, superpowers, and great nations have declined in the past. While many like to comfort themselves that America is different and even uniquely blessed of God, there is no proof we will escape the fate of other empires, nations, and states who, at the time, believed the same about themselves. This is the thesis of my new book, America's Expiration Date, The Fall of Empire's Superpowers and the Future of the United States. Many believe things are going swimmingly and the signs seem to confirm it. As the President has noted, unemployment is at record lows, employment at record highs across all demographics. The stock market keeps setting records going up over 900 points the last two days, and I just checked 77 points this morning. What's going on? It's slipping. If it is the economy stupid, as James Carville famously said, then we are in great shape, and a bright future awaits us. Or does it? My book is based on an essay by the late British diplomat Sir John Glubb. Sir John studied 4,000 years of human history and found a pattern. He wrote that the average age of empires is 250 years. There are a few exceptions, such as the Roman Empire, but even the exceptions followed a similar pattern. These include massive national debt. We are $23 trillion in debt and no end in sight. The president in his State of the Union address uh, called for more spending on various things. He did not call for a cut or a reduction or an elimination of a single government program. So massive national debt is one common denominator of national decline. Politicians on both sides refuse to say what they would cut or even cut the rate of increase in spending for fear of being demagogued to political death. Some of you will remember uh, Speaker Paul Ryan a few years ago who actually came up with a proposal to reform Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid the made drivers of our debt and entitlement programs. And instead of a uh, intellectual or honest response, the left came up with a, a, a TV ad. They hired some guy they thought looked like Ryan, pushing an old lady in a wheelchair over a cliff. That was not a serious response to a serious proposal. But it's why politicians flee the whole idea of reducing the size and reach and scope of government, because they fear being labeled anti-children, anti-grandma, lacking in compassion, and all of the rest of the stuff those of us over 21 have heard about before. Uncontrolled immigration without assimilation is another characteristic of declining nation-states. One cannot preserve a country if that country forgets who and what it is. It isn't racism to want to protect what we have. We want others to come, but legally and at a pace that we can absorb them. Instead of our national motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one, we are becoming out of one, many. We are now hyphenated Americans. I recall a quote attributed to Whoopi Goldberg, who I don't often quote, but in this case, she reportedly said, I am not African American, I'm an American. That notion is in short supply today. We are subdividing ourselves into tribes that only yell at each other too many prefer revolution to resolution we know each other by labels and we know people of different labels hardly at all we tune into programs on radio and television that reinforce what we already believe rather than consider ideas from other sources and debate which ones actually work one of the other factors mentioned by sir john glubb in his essay the fate of empires and search for survival is the loss of a collective morality, and an abandonment of God. Polls show 20% of millennials answer none when asked if they have a religious preference. This is dangerous, if only from a practical point of view. One must have a purpose in life beyond working, earning money, and spending on stuff. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, is a philosophy that undermines any culture. America was founded, in part, out of a moral sense, a sense that God was behind it. But what happens if God is abandoned? Can we live off the inertia of our founders and the greatest generation much longer? Most young people have never served in the military these days or know anyone who has. Most have contributed little or nothing to the strengthening of America, believing instead they are entitled to certain things simply because they are alive and breathing. This is the appeal of the socialist left, represented by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Who doesn't like free stuff? Although in the end, there's always a cost. It was Alexander Solzhenitsyn who warned America and the West where it is headed. And if we don't turn things around, his Harvard and Templeton Prize speeches are reprinted in my book, asked how communism could survive seven decades in the Soviet Union The great Russian writer replied, we forgot God. Lincoln said much the same about the cause of the Civil War. Eight empires are profiled in my book. They include Rome, Byzantium, Persia, Russia before the Bolshevik Revolution, Britain, the Ottomans, the Arab and Spanish Empires, and lastly, the United States. America has survived many challenges, from our initial revolution against a superior British military power, to recessions, a great depression, civil war, two world wars, Vietnam, and now we are faced with a different kind of war, terrorism. Those past challenges were met with a resolve born out of a shared ethic and moral sense that is today in rapid retreat. Today, anything goes, and if you shout stop, you're labeled a bigot, intolerant, and driven from your job and the public square. Canada is showing what our future might look like. The government penalizes preachers and others who speak against the spirit of the age, whether that is in relationships between humans or the climate change cult. We also need a debate about America's role in the world. Military overextension has been another contributor to the collapse of empires and great nations. President Trump has rightly called on our NATO allies to play a bigger role, not only in defense spending, but on the ground in trouble spots where terrorists breed with the goal of harming us. The late liberal senator in 1972, Democratic presidential candidate George McGovern said we can't be the policemen of the world. He was right. The casual way in which we treat human life is another cause of decline. From slavery to today's abortion rate, it is not just the tens of millions of abortions that have cut off family trees. It is also abortion's effects which include shootings in our major cities. In Chicago and Baltimore and other cities, shootings have become so common they hardly make the news anymore. People are killed for their sneakers, leather jackets, or just because they dissed someone else. More laws don't help stem this murderous tide. How can they when the moral law has been abandoned? So how do we turn it around, or can we, so that America doesn't suffer the same fate of other empires and great nations? I deal with that as well. Is there still time? There is, but not much. I believe our first priority should be the next generation. It is something like starting a backfire, so when the fire that threatens people and their homes reaches the backfire, it goes out. We need, in my view, to take our children and grandchildren out of the secular progressive re-education camps known as public schools and liberal universities. We don't send our soldiers to train in the enemy's camp. Why do we send our children into schools that teach values counters to so many of our own, expecting them to return home with those values and beliefs still intact? School choice remains the most powerful liberating factor that would free especially poor and minority children from failed public schools. And I really appreciate the president addressing this, and I interviewed uh, Betsy DeVos this morning after the National Prayer Breakfast, and we talked a lot about opportunity scholarships and the future of school choice in America and how hypocritical it is for the left to be pro-choice on abortion and anti-choice for those fortunate enough to have been born on where they would go to school. The left wants those donations from the teachers' unions and won't let the kids go. It's kind of a reverse, if you remember, history of George Wallace. The late governor of Alabama and a Democrat standing in the schoolhouse door in the early 60s to keep African Americans out. Now, the secular progressive left stands in the schoolhouse door to keep them trapped in. What hypocrisy! What hypocrisy! There's no shame about it. Calling for more spending as the solution to underperforming schools is not the answer. If it was, the trillions of dollars that have been spent on education in the last 40 years would have produced national merit scholarships coming out of every door. We are spending more than ever on what we call public education, yet too many of our kids lag behind the rest of the country, and too many of them lag behind other countries, especially in science and math. And Secretary DeVos told me this morning it's gotten worse than when she uh, became Secretary of Education. I'm reminded of a favorite quote from uh, Barbara Bush, who once thanked me for keeping it alive. <laughs> If you have children, she said, they must come first. Our success as a nation, your success as a family, depends less on what happens in the White House and more on what happens in your house. The family remains the foundation of any nation in society. Easy divorce, shacking up, and put a crack in that foundation. Second, we need to do a better job of looking to ourselves, not government. Government should be a last resort, not a first resource. A safety net, not a hammock. This means saving, investing, and living within our means so we can take care of ourselves and our families. Savings rates are at deplorably low levels, and large numbers of Americans lack the resources to care for themselves in retirement. Do we really need all the stuff the commercials and marketing geniuses say we need? If so, why do public storage units proliferate across the country? It seems to be the fastest uh, growing entity I've ever seen. So there's not enough room in our attics and basement anymore for all the stuff we have. We have to rent places for the overflow. I plead guilty to that, by the way. (laughs) The late Jack Kemp measured compassion not on how many people are on public assistance, but on how many were freed from dependence on government. And the president addressed this the other night in a State of the Union address and uh, talked about the number of people who have left the welfare and food stamp rolls and I think that's a wonderful thing. Third, we need to speak to our neighbors, friends, and coworkers about where they're getting their information. You know, the latest Gallup poll shows 49% approval uh, for the president, but 50% still disapprove. What about follow-up questions? Where are you getting your information? I mean, how do you know what you know? They never tell us. The media have become a collective organ for secular progressives. Their power is not only in how they slant stories to their point of view, it is also the subjects and stories they ignore. As my friend, the talk show host Chris Plant here in Washington said, the real power of the media is the power to ignore what they don't cover and what they don't report. Opinion polls have become our new Bible, but we don't know the depth of understanding of the people who are polled, as I said, or where they're getting their information. They're hearing only one side, The Media Research Center has found that 93% of major media coverage of President Trump has been negative, 93%. I'm not sure it was that high during the Nixon administration. Ask people you know if they would consider listening to other opinions, even facts, not alternative facts, just other facts. Ask them what they know about Rush Limbaugh, God bless him, and whether they have ever listened to him or only heard what others say about him. Ask them if they would read position papers from the Heritage Foundation, which still produces some of the best I have ever read. And after that, take another poll and see if their minds have been changed. Today's polling resembles one of those thermometers your grandmother used to put in meat to see when it's done in the oven. The media cook up negative stories about the president and conservatives and then take polls to see if their bias is getting through. Not with this one, apparently. Apparently. There are other positive suggestions at the end of my book, but those are some of the central ones, and if I told you all of them, you wouldn't want to buy it. Maybe you wouldn't anyway, but no. No nation can endure if it forgets its purpose and its people compete for what others have rather than building their own present and future. On July 4th, 2026, the United States of America will be 250 years old. That is the average lifespan of great nations about which Sir John Glove has written. I'm not wearing one of those sandwich boards with a long white beard and, you know, the end is near and all of that stuff. These are averages. But what will prevent us from suffering the same fate of other great nations and empires if we don't act to turn things around? It will be up to us and the next and perhaps last generation of Americans who remember the way things used to be to determine whether that day will be a celebration, July 4th, 2026, or a funeral. Let's learn historical lessons from those who have gone before us, and not be like Don McLean's song, Vincent, where he sings, they didn't listen. They're not listening still. Perhaps they never will. I'm available to sing that song, already, <laughs> or not, depending on whatever. So that's kind of a summation of my book and my view of where we are after uh, 50 years in this media business. I know I don't look at it, I started very young as a disc jockey at WINX in Rockville, Maryland, <clears throat> where I played such wonderful hits as ba 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 dang a dang a ding a dong ding blue moon They don't write them like that anymore, folks. I can't, uh, fortunately. Anyway, open to any questions, comments. Uh, my wonderful wife, uh, CJ, is here. Where are they? She's right down in front. You can all say, how in the world did you ever win somebody like that? Grace of God, what can I say? So, yes, ma'am, hi. Uh Uh-huh. Well, the, uh, the thing about having all the guns is that uh, the government has greater firepower. You might want to ask, why does the Department of Agriculture have a SWAT team? Hmm? Uh, they've got their weapons are much bigger. You know, they're selling them uh, some, uh, you know, old uh, military uh, weaponry to local police. And uh, I'm concerned about this, frankly. And uh, there's, look, again, as I said in my remarks, uh, the values and virtues of a, of a nation have to be renewed. It's it's not automatic. You cannot live off it. Of, we've been living off the inertia of the World War II generation now. They're almost gone. And uh, we haven't renewed it. We, matter of fact, we've done just the opposite. We've been attacking all of those things that they fought to preserve. You can't survive like that. And you know, say you're a religious person, look up in the Concordance and see if you can find the United States of America. It's not in there. But you know, uh, what Isaiah says, Isaiah 40, about nations, you know, rise against nation. Jesus talked about this, wars and rumors of wars. That gets to human nature. We need to preserve, protect, and defend not only the Constitution but our way of life if we want to preserve it. And that's up to us. We have the great power, not these characters in Washington. It's bubble up. It's not trickle down. Okay? Anybody else? Yes, hi.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Kambi, but my, you mentioned my question is about civilization. The last civilization you mentioned that went right down uh, Muslim, Spanish, Mm -hmm. Do you consider Ottoman Empire and Indian Mughal, who ruled India for hundreds of years? They came from Central Asia. Do you think these two civilizations was kind of residual of Islamic and Spanish civilization? And related question about going down, like, see, India Mm -hmm. uh, had these two quality that that what we have in this country, that is openness, like First Amendment, Mm -hmm. and uh, multiculturalism, and uh, progressiveness so india is still you know kind of superpower in south asia and it's coming up so do you think that these qualities could leave uh, 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 out of danger to any
0: civilization well that's a great question and i do think that uh, as the president has rightly labeled it radical islamic terrorism is probably uh, the greater the greatest threat we have or will face and the reason for that is and the reason i wrote a column uh, last week opposing his Middle East peace plan, is that for years, the West has erroneously thought that what Israel and the West does will deter or change the minds of people who believe that their God has commanded them to kill infidels, starting with the Jews and eliminating Israel, and then coming after the West and imposing Sharia law. Now, say, well, that's only a minority within Islam. Well, that's fine. But if you're walking down certain streets of Washington at midnight, and somebody shoots you, and you say, well, that's only a minority of people in Washington, you're still going to be dead, OK? So that's, that's what the challenge is. And I remember asking uh, Condoleezza Rice about this when she was Secretary of State, and a, a wonderful woman, and a Christian. I said, look, why don't you believe what they say? They say it in their sermons. They say it in their media. They say it from, uh, uh, in their textbooks. You look at some of the textbooks that Saudi Arabia supposedly revised, but they didn't significantly, Uh, you know, one plus one grenade equals two grenades. That's the kind of stuff that's in there. There's no higher calling for a a Muslim child than to die in the service of Allah. How How does a secular Western diplomat combat that kind of thing and change the minds of people who believe they have a direct command from their God to kill everybody else who doesn't agree with them, including other Muslims, by the way, uh, and uh, you know, I, I so I think we got to be very wary of that. I really do. It's a good question, but uh, a lot of people don't want to address it because you know, called Islamophobes. You got CARE here in Washington, uh, the uh, Hamas Front, and the Holy Land Foundation case, and all the rest, and uh, they're funded by you know the same people who fund the Carter Library. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, look into it. No kidding. Yes, hi in the back. I'm having trouble hearing you.
1: I didn't hear the first part of your message.
0: Yeah. No, I'm not a prophet or the son of one. I'm, I'm just saying in my remarks and in my book, there is a pattern to human history, as Sir John Glove, the late British diplomat, said there was. And the eight empires that are profiled in the book all follow the same pattern. Some of them lasted longer than 250 years, some lasted a little shorter, but the average was about 250 years. I'm not predicting on July 4, 2026, the United States will collapse, but I am saying that there is no guarantee that if we don't turn this around by the decisions we make and how we educate our children and grandchildren, we could suffer serious consequences. Now you look at the British uh, Empire, You know, once it said the sun never set, on the British Empire, they basically control more territory in the world than any other empire in history. Now, well, they still exist, but they're a shadow of their former selves. Uh, Scotland is talking about another separation vote. Wales, there's a anti uh, UK sentiment there. I don't know what Canada's going to do, but they're a shadow of the former selves because of all the reasons I discuss in the book on the, on the chapter of, of the. Uh, of the horribly named UK, can you imagine William Shakespeare? This earth, this realm, this hallowed, uh, this UK? No, England, England. You go back to England. Anyway, I don't know if I answered your question, but I enjoyed it. Oh, yes, sir. Hi. Uh, David Burton with the Heritage.
2: Foundation. Yes, David. David Burton with the Heritage Foundation. Oh you, I think, accurately mentioned the dire fiscal situation in the United States, particularly the uh, growth in entitlement programs, Medicare, and Medicaid, yep. so, and Social Security. Yep. The unfunded liabilities in Social Security and Medicare dwarf the official national threat. Yep. Uh, you also mentioned the, the attacks on Paul Ryan with the television commercial, mm-hmm. having a Ryan lookalike push uh, grandma off a cliff. Yeah. Yeah. But when Paul Ryan put together his... Uh, Medicare reform program and with premium support Mm -hmm. that would have had wealthy and upper-middle-income people pay the true cost of Medicare and then got Republicans to vote for it repeatedly. The Republicans took control of the House for the first time in Mm -hmm. quite some time. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that the conventional wisdom that entitlement reform is politically suicidal is wrong. And as you identify, we need to do it. Because for those familiar with the actual numbers, the fiscal situation in this country is genuinely frightening. How would you propose we proceed to address this problem?
0: Well, you know, the, uh, maybe our national anthem should be that uh, 1970 song, Let the Devil Take Tomorrow, Help Me, Make It Through the Night. Uh, we don't have a sense of community or shared values anymore. There was a book in the 1970s that went to Number one on the New York Times bestseller list by a guy named Robert Ringer, called "Looking Out for Number One," and that seems to be our attitude. I've got mine. I'm entitled to something. The whole idea of being personally responsible and accountable to your life for your life has seemed to disappear in our. The values I was brought up with, my wife was brought up with, her father was in the Navy, my dad was in the Army, World War II, uh, all seem to have disappeared. Uh, what we have today is, is the notion that if you make $2 and I make $1, you owe me 50 cents to make it fair. I wrote a column a few months ago saying that I had a deep, dark secret that I had hidden for years, and I felt it was necessary for me to reveal it. Yes, I suffer from income inequality. Oh, the shame. The shame. Yes, there have always been people making more money than me. You know something? I don't care, because the left's uh, monetary philosophy is that there's only one pot of money. And it only contains so much. And if you take out more than your fair share, how many times have we heard that phrase from the left, then it's it's not fair to other people. In fact, wealth can be unending, depending on how you build it for yourself, if you invest wisely, if you get married before you have kids, if you're a responsible adult, a parent, and and send your kids to the right school, if you invest if invest wisely. Rick Edelman, my financial guy, who has a show on WMAL here, and he's on television, written some great books, um, says the savings rates for retirement are appallingly low. People still think, and I got this letter the other day from this woman who said, I'm entitled to my Social Security. I've paid into it all these years. I wrote her back and said, ma'am, you haven't paid into anything. You're paying a tax that goes to other people who are currently retired, and you are relying on people who who, uh, come after you to pay... For you, there's no account in the, in the treasury with your name on it, a box that you can open up and there's all the cash and can be distributed to you. That, that's not the way it works. But that's the way a lot of people think. And so we have to change our thinking. Now, I, as I said in my remarks, I mean, I believe in a compassionate society, but government is a last resort. We need, you know, when I was growing up, we penalized and discouraged the things we said we wanted less of and subsidized and encouraged the things we said we wanted more of. Now it's flipped. We penalize and discourage the things we say we want more of and subsidize and encourage the things we say we want less of and are then shocked to find we're getting more of what we want less of and less of what we want more of. Yes, I remembered it. Come on, people, come on.
1: Come
0: on, wish. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. That tough audience here. Reminds me of Rodney Dangerfield's great line. I was so ugly when I was born. The doctor slapped my mother. Hey. Yes. I'm going to jokes. Yes, ma'am. Hi. you think China Oh, wait for the mic. Yeah. Pass it down there, Phil Donahue. It's <laughs> what
1: people at home
0: can. What? It's
1: people
0: at home can hear. Oh yeah, people at home can hear. Yes. Hi people at home. Yes, ma'am.
3: Hi. Um what do you think the role of China is or will be could be in terms of impacting our future as we move
0: forward? Well, they're uh, dealing with this uh, coronavirus right now, which actually some people is think uh, is related to the light beer. Really, I'm not kidding. It's, it's at the level of education in our country. Uh, I think China is, uh, as, as others have noted, has, is a bigger threat than uh, Putin, and uh, in some cases, it could be argued, even uh, terrorism. Uh, until the last 30 or 40 years, China had not been an expansionist country. It had been content to solidify itself to fight its poverty and other problems. And now as we're seeing with bases being built in the South China Sea and uh, their aggressiveness in establishing new beachheads in South America and in other places around the world, a lot of us are ignoring this because it's being done quietly and under the radar. But it is a serious threat and I think that uh, you know, the Chinese are going to be a major challenge to us in the future. I think they've got suffered a serious public relations blow with how they've dealt with this coronavirus, and a lot of people think, including the administration, that they've been covering up the actual numbers, which I think I read this morning is now in the tens of thousands that they're admitting to, which probably means it's a lot more. So I think China will remain a, a serious threat under the communist government, uh, and I hope that uh, system doesn't last forever. The Chinese have been incredibly resilient Over many many years, and I hope they survive communism too. They're wonderful people. Uh, Yes, ma'am, in the back. Then we'll get you to you, sir. Yes, hi. Never go wrong going to the blonde first.
3: Hello, Dale, the Heritage Foundation. Hi, hi. I was wondering if you could give us a take on the Trump phenomenon. I'm sorry, (laughs) phenomenon, um, and its corollary in Great Britain or England or the UK over there.
2: Two guys um, with bad hair. <laughs> yeah.
3: The the uh, Boris Johnson phenomenon. Yeah. Um, in, in cultural terms, as you're looking at the big picture here, how does that fit in? Because I think it might have some impact on your narrative
0: there. Um, well, I think the Trump phenomenon is the result of a lot of anger, a lot of people, and their fed-up level of Washington. And I think uh, it is justified at some level, but anger is not policy. And you can only get so far with being fed up and I was at the National Prayer Breakfast this morning. I'm going to write about this next week. And uh, Arthur Brooks, the Harvard uh, professor and uh, columnist for The Washington Post, gave a brilliant, and I mean brilliant, talk on reconciliation. Sitting at the end of the table was Nancy Pelosi. Sitting at the other end was President Trump. He didn't go down to see her. And he got up and he said, Arthur, I disagree with you. And boy, the air like went out of the room. Um, It only gets you so far. Now, the, the president's fortunate in the kind of opponents he has, who are hardcore left-wing socialists. But I would rather win on the issues. I think it's more important than just defeating your opponent in election. I think prevailing on the issues, which the president is doing, by the way, at almost every level, is far superior. And and I believe that that's a major reason why the Democrats and the hard left hate him, because he is actually succeeding, unlike any president, any Republican president, and certainly any Democrat president in the last uh, 50 years. And that's what they hate. They thought they were going to be able to keep huge numbers of people addicted to government and threaten them, if they don't continue to vote for us, you're going to lose your check. And now people are realizing they're off welfare, they're off food stamps, they have jobs, they can provide for their family, and why should they vote for Democrats? And the really encouraging thing, and the president's mentioned this, and he did it the other night in his State of the Union address where he introduced that young African-American girl and her mother, and and gave her a, a opportunity scholarship. I asked Betsy DeVos this morning where that's coming from, and she said private donations. Eighteen states now have these opportunity scholarships, and this scares the heck out of the left as well. Uh, again, you know these are people who are pro-choice on abortion, but against choice for those fortunate enough to have been born on where they go to school, which seems to me to be a double standard. Or as Chris Plant says, if the left didn't have double standards, they'd have no standards at all. I always love that line. I give full credit, by the way. I don't know if I answered your question, but I had a good time. Yes, sir. You had a question. Hi, who are you? Grab the mic. There you go. Gentleman in the front. Yep.
3: Yeah, thanks. Um do you think there's any benefit or virtue to the idea that every geopolitical superpower in the past has
0: had an expiration date? Do I think there's any legitimacy? Benefit. Any what?
3: Any benefit or virtue? Well oh, benefit.
0: Well, if there's a benefit if you uh you know if you learn from it. You know, the cliches, the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Uh, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Maybe cliches, but it's true. Um, you know, we're not the first generation to walk this planet. Uh, we didn't just crawl out of a cave. We don't have to invent the wheel or discover the use of fire. We can learn from those who have gone before. Update things as necessary. But everything, you know, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything you think has been thought before. Everything you do has been done before. So why repeat it if you can learn from did it work or didn't it? Did investing this amount of money for this goal, did it achieve that goal or didn't it? In business, we do that. If your sales plan is working, you keep plugging away. If the competition is outselling you, you change your strategy or you go out of business. And it's the same for nations. Do we continue down this path that I've outlined and and detail further in my book, thinking that the outcome will be different from what other empires and nation states have experienced? If we do, then we are self-deluded, in my view. Yes, sir, right over here, thank you. You have been talking about morality, values, religion, other uh, socialist stuff. Mm -hmm. How do you justify your uh, support or uh, appraising a president that is exactly opposite of what you have been telling? Well, uh, there are two kingdoms. Jesus spoke of his kingdom not being of this world, and that's the one I'm invested in. But in my temporary... uh, Existence on this planet. I have to make a choice in leadership and in the last election in 2016 and apparently in this coming one in 2020 there are two philosophies that are uh, That are contrary to each other one is bigger government more regulations raising taxes uh, abortion for any reason up to the moment of birth and if you're governor of Virginia even after birth if the woman changes her mind or the kid survives abortion uh, or lower taxes, more personal responsibility, protection of speech and religious freedom, uh, less government intrusion and regulation, uh, protection of the second amendment. Now, those are pretty contrasting views. Now, I may not like a president's personality or some of those running against him, but I'm focusing more on their policies. Now, if I could have good personality and good policy, that would be ideal. But that's not the choice we had in 2016. And it's not going to be the choice in 2020. So call it pragmatic or whatever. But, uh, you know, you got to vote for somebody. Whereas Bob Dylan saying, you got to serve somebody. How do you like that cultural reference? Weren't you impressed? Yes, ma'am. Hi. You. Hold it. Wait till the mic comes so folks at home can hear. Um,
2: so you talked a lot about um, personal responsibility and of the imperative of the individual to work and serve himself. But you also stress the importance of religiosity. And traditionally, in religious teaching, there is a great focus placed on the community, the imperative to care for and protect the most vulnerable individuals, and not this focus on sort of the individual on the self. Um, So how do you reconcile these two?
1: Very easily, uh,
0: because the commands in scripture are not to the state, they're to the individual. Uh, if the state could have, the state is not compassionate. Okay. The state, uh, redistributes money and misspends a lot of it. Uh, what the president said in his state of the union address the other night, uh, I thought was fantastic. Counting up the number of people who are no longer on food stamps, but are independent and feeding themselves who are no longer on the welfare rolls. You know, in the, uh, Clinton Gingrich, uh, uh, welfare reform bill in the early nineties, uh, the left was screaming that people are going to die in the streets of starvation. Children would not have milk. And just the opposite happened. Again, human nature. When people realized that they were no longer, and they were given them, what six months to a year or something like that, advance notice. When they realized that the gravy train wasn't going to stop at their mailbox anymore, they actually went out and started looking for jobs. Right now, as the president noted in his State of the Union speech the other night, there are more jobs available than people to fill them. That has not happened in my memory. So if you want a job and you're willing to work, it's there for you. And you're not going to be stuck at entry level. I mean, McDonald's and Starbucks have all these wonderful programs for their employees. They help pay for school in case of Starbucks. I don't know but McDonald's, but uh, they pay the whole thing. And it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. You can go up, move up management, all kinds of things. But something has to click in your mind. You have to change the entitlement mentality. You have to change the notion that you're a loser and can't achieve anything. If you can't make it here, it's not just about New York, New York. You can't make it anywhere. This is a land of opportunity, not guaranteed equal outcome. That's the big difference between conservatives like myself and liberals who think... You know, everybody ought to have the same thing. Some of you re- will remember, I don't know if you do, Margaret Thatcher's wonderful line uh, the only problem with socialism is you soon run out of other people's money. Hi. You are? I'm Martha Lewis. Hello, Martha. Hi. You're very articulate and very, you know, got a great voice. I didn't have the microphone. Well, you were good without it.
3: <laughs> um, I'm not part of Heritage, I'm independent. I'm fortunate to come from, I can count now, four generations of thinking conservatives. Mm. However, Whoever. I acquired um, some stepchildren.
0: Some what? Stepchildren. Stepchildren,
3: yes. sorry. And I, I'm, I'm essentially the only living parent. Mm. And they balance the other side. <laughs> Have you discovered any way to begin to open the mind of anyone who thinks that way? Yeah, brain
0: surgery would uh, would help with <laughs>
3: Well, my brother is a neurosurgeon. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, you know what Mark Twain said. When I was 18, I thought my father was an idiot. When I was 21, I was amazed at how much he had learned in three years. There's a lot about life that teaches. Well, this gets back to what I was saying earlier. Uh, if they are broad-minded, as they claim, if they are pluralistic and pro-diversity and think uh, all ideas should be welcome in the public square, ask them if they would read some position papers on issues they care about from the Heritage Foundation. They can find it online, you know, heritage.org. Great stuff, well thought out, not so much partisan as the goal is what works. If it's working, we keep it. If we don't, we don't. If it's not, we don't. And uh, so I would just appeal to them on the basis of their liberalism, openness, tolerance, pluralism, diversity, and all those other buzzwords, and ask them if they would be uh, interested in uh, another point of view. And if they're not, then you you know accuse them of being closed-minded, all those other things.
3: Especially now that I... Um know what is in your book I will buy at least two copies um bless you uh, but I'm sorry the title is so depressing
0: yeah there's hope you know the last chapter there's hope yes hi this gentleman down here Al Milliken AM Media what's your uh, opinion insight into
3: the body of Christ worldwide and uh, in particular the state of the uh American church (laughs)
0: Well, uh, you know, Paul writes in Colossians that we are the church. Um, Somebody asked me once, what's your denominational background? I said fives, tens, twenties, fifties, and hundreds. I like to go back to the original cast. It's always better than the roadshow. You know, in every generation, there has been um, ups and downs in the spiritual life of individuals and and of countries. I think we are uh, in somewhat of a decline in that. But in 1857, there was a uh, major decline, too, and two men decided to get together on Wall Street during their lunch hour, where they worked, and just pray for revival once a week. They prayed once a week for revival in America. Uh, Then they decided that the condition of the country as it was heading towards civil war and the secession of the southern states was so serious that they needed to pray every day on their lunch hour, and a few others began to join them. The crowd got so large at the Dutch Consistory building in uh, southern Manhattan, which, by the way, survived 9-11 while all the other buildings around it collapsed. Interesting. Uh, they decided to move to the churches at night and pray for revival and invite their wives and other family members. It wasn't long before revival broke out. At the height of it, 10,000 people a week were being converted in New York. It raced down the Appalachian Mountains, and uh, when it got to West Virginia in the middle of uh, winter, uh, pastors were cutting holes in the ice and baptizing people in the cold water, prompting one commentator to say, when Baptists do that, you know they're on fire. When it jumped the Atlantic and uh, got to the uh, coal mines in, um, in Wales, there was a work slowdown. and Somebody said, well, how could there be a work slowdown during a revival? And the answer was that so many miners were converted, they stopped using bad language, and the horses couldn't understand what was being said to them. Uh, there's stories about this, but they come out of, a, of, of, a, of what J. Edwin Orr called a concert of prayer. And we've tried everything else in this country to reform our morals and values, but it's always been from the top down at legislation and putting a hope in a president or whatever. It doesn't work that way, not in the kingdom of God. And I think that for those of us who are followers uh, not of religion, which is a negative force, but of Jesus of Nazareth, um, those of us who follow him, poorly in my case, but nevertheless, uh, have tried and seen everything tried in our lifetime. And how many times have you heard, all I can do is pray? Why do we leave that as the last and not the first? We're appealing to the creator of the universe. Unless, of course, you think the reason you like bananas is that your nearest relative is down at the zoo, and that's another case. But so the state of the church, you know, it, it belongs to a higher power than any pastor or denomination or whatever. So he'll take care of it. He promised he would, and he will. Uh, one or two more, and then I'm getting old, so i got to sit down. Yes, hi. Are you a student, or do you just look like one? No, I'm a student. Are you? Whereabouts? Uh, American University. Oh, it's my alma mater. It's gotten worse. Since. <laughs> you know what my tuition was? and uh, My tuition was $450 a semester. Now you can't get out of the bookstore of that, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh,
3: okay.
0: What are you studying? Uh,
3: political science, I a uh, major in philosophy.
0: Oh, good. OK, we're in the right town. So you mentioned how liberal universities are problematic for US morals and values. Um, well, among other things, and history and you know, a lot of other stuff. So my question to you is, how do you balance morals yet stay competitive in a globalized world um, if the very institutions that are
3: like spurring innovation to keep us at the top of power are destroying our value system.
0: Well, there are some things that always work. And this, again, was addressed by Arthur Brooks this morning at the prayer breakfast. By the way, I encourage you when it's on YouTube to, uh, to go and watch this. His, his remarks were brilliant. And he quoted, uh, you know, Jesus, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I mean, these are these are things that can be global. They're not unique to Christians or the United States or whatever. And they produce, or can produce, a totally unexpected response because it's not the natural state. I'm going to write about this next week. I, I thought the president missed a golden opportunity this morning. With Nancy Pelosi sitting at the end, he didn't even go down to see that side of the table. He just came in, held up a couple of newspaper headlines that said acquitted. The prayer breakfast is not a political thing, it's bipartisan, Democrats, Republicans. But I thought he missed a great opportunity. And Arthur even said, look, if you can't do it in your heart during his remarks, fake it. Now, who's better at faking it? Who is better at faking it than Mr. Reality TV star? So there are certain things that, that transcend a nation or even a belief system. And they're so unique that it gets people's attention. Love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you? Where do we see that? We don't even see that very much in the church anymore, which was Brooks' point this morning. So be countercultural and do something. You know, the character who played Eric Little in Chariots of Fire, one of my favorite movies, um, said, uh, uh, God made me for a purpose for China as a missionary, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. So, that's feeling the pleasure of God is is really great. One more, maybe? Oh, we got three guys there. Well, let's take let's take the uh, leftover hippie from the '60s here first, right here. Right there. Uh, who are you, sir? And what is your name? And what what are you doing here? And why aren't my you name is
3: Michael Crone, and You you almost hit me in that. I I was born in 1970s. Oh, so, I'm
0: sorry. Almost. So you had to grow up in disco. I'm very sorry.
3: <laughs> so um. Something you said caught my attention because well, it- I'm glad.
0: <laughs> Gee, wow. it took a while, but they uh, finally yeah, okay. something. Yeah. You know, let me know next time <laughs> I will electrify your chair. But go ahead. <laughs> um,
3: so so th- one of the big issues to me, and one that I'm more hopeful on than most people I know that are pro-life, is abortion because mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, in in the light, you know, with anyone leading that has like a plausible plan to end it you know, a whole bunch of people will, will join in. And I say that as preface, though, because when you're talking about how it has to be from the ground up Mm -hmm. without getting someone to lead it right now on abortion, it's not that clear how much, you know, I mean, there already is a bunch of popular things going on and it's, it's almost creating learned helplessness until someone comes up and says, you know, I'm really going to pay attention and take this seriously.
0: Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, the Pregnancy Help Centers, which um, almost, well, were very, very few in, when Roe versus Wade was decided by the Supreme Court, have uh, proliferated to the point where, um, you know, they're available to just anybody about anywhere. And these are people who offer not only physical uh, help, financial help, spiritual help, but uh, help with adoptions, if that's the choice of the woman. Help with uh, reconciliation with boyfriends or husbands or whatever, and it's it's a wonderful thing. Then the sonogram technology, of course, has really really been useful in the pro-life movement to actually see a picture. Which, of course, at Planned Parenthood they don't do. They turn the they turn the screen around so the women can't see it. And then the media, of course, never talk about uh, women who've regretted their decision and had an abortion. They only, you know, the only Washington Post every now and then. Publishes a column, I had my abortion, I'm glad I did. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. But, you know, this, this is not an issue that can be seen in isolation. I think I touched on that briefly in my remarks. If you devalue human life at one, uh, in one category, it is inevitable that human life eventually will be devalued in other categories. And we're seeing that now with the pressure on the health care system. Uh, we, we've seen it, you know, during Hillary Care, uh, where she was proposing um, well, panels, which would be made up of you know, the usual suspects, even a clergyman. You always find a clergyman to endorse anything. The clergyman endorsed Hitler, the Lutheran Church in Germany. Uh, and uh, the government will decide, based on your income and what you're contributing to taxes and your age, It'll all start at the extremes, of course. It'll be grandma's 98 years old, has a brain tumor, and has signed a living will, and she'll be extinguished. But the category is a slippery slope. It'll go slowly, 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 where the government will determine who gets to live and who gets to die. And that's, you know, that's not an extremist view. I mean, I don't quote Sarah Palin often, but she was right about death panels. That's exactly what it is. So if you devalue human life before it has a chance to be born. Then you're going to the, the infirm, the inconvenient, the unwanted, uh, or as you know, the Nazis, uh, Jews, gays, uh, uh, you know, Down syndrome, uh, anybody who they regarded as less than perfect uh, are fit for extermination. You say, well, it can't happen here. That's what they thought in Germany. It can happen anywhere because of what happens in the human heart. I'm proud to announce my candidacy. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm running from office, not for. Maybe one more, OK? Yes, sir. Hi. Who are you? Where are you from?
2: Uh, my name is William. I'm from Northern Virginia. But
3: uh, I'm working over at the center right now. Good. Um, in an increasingly irreligious nation, uh, do you think that there is a way to inculcate moral values um, or an alternative to religion? Or do you think that there has to be another sort of great awakening to be able to get these community values?
0: I think uh, you know, it's sort of like, to, <laughs> it's like trying to restore virginity. No. Only happens once, so maybe that's a poor analogy. Uh I think uh I think it, it's it's the collective effect of people who determine to live differently. And it starts with one, and it starts with your family, and it starts with your friends and neighbors. Uh it's a powerful witness, to use a religious term, when you live according to the values you profess, not judging others, but loving them. And Sooner or later, they're going to ask you, you know, why are you the way you are? Why do you care about me? I have a granddaughter who uh, is having some difficulty with some of her coworkers who are jealous of the rapid rise in her particular job, and she wrote me the other day. I said, uh, bring, your, uh, bring your co-workers coffee some morning, buy it for them, donuts, whatever they like, okay? Uh, be available to them, be interested in them. How are you? How's your family? How are you and your husband getting along? You know, whatever. Not nosy, but just demonstrate that you care. They're going to say, you know, why do you care about me? Because God loves you and me too. And inevitably, that always leads to something else. So it begins with the individual. You know, scripture is full of, of comments about how God's power is revealed the widow's might, the mustard seed, the last place at the table. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time if you faint not. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint over and over and over. Because we're stupid and don't get it the first time, he tells us if you want my power instead of your power, and how's that working out for you? You got to do it my way. Okay? Thank you for your kind attention. I'm happy to sign any books. Genevieve, thank you, as always. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Cal, thank you. I, I didn't mention that he also preaches on the side, oh, which is great. On yeah, on the side. No, I do a standing up. <laughs> And a comedian. Right. Um, for those who haven't gotten books, we still have them outside. If you'd like to get a copy, purchase them. Cal has agreed to sit here and sign those. Right. And I would—I have to admit, because Rob Bluey who is the executive editor of the Daily Signal, would be really mad at me probably if I didn't mention that we run Cal's column on the Daily Signal. Bless you, my,
0: my
1: thank, thank you, you. <laughs> DailySignal.com. You can find his work there among many, many other places. Cal, thank you. And now we're going to open up the book signing. Thanks, everybody. Hey, thank everybody for coming.
0: Thanks to uh, Northern Virginia and uh, some a couple in Richmond.
1: Thank
2: <laughs> you.